Hey folks, welcome to the Sermons Podcast of Christ Church at Grove Farm. Whether it's your first time or you've been here since the beginning, we are thrilled to be a part of your spiritual walk and look forward to all that Christ is doing in your life. If you are looking for more information about Christ Church or you would like to connect with one of our pastors or ministry leaders, you can reach us on our website, ccgf.org. You can also connect with us on YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Here is this week's message. Grace and peace to you. In the church where I grew up, there are three generations of a certain family that I know pretty well. Uh, the, the first generation, I guess, would be the grandfather. And, and this grandfather, man, he is truly a patriarch. He was truly a patriarch. Just a, a man of, of faith, of great strength, certain boldness about him. He's the kind of guy that when he was in a room, he commanded your attention just by his, his presence. Do you know people like that? He had that kind of authority. Incredible. Well, well that, that man had two sons. And those sons were towering guys. Towering guys they are. In every way. Physically. Spiritually. The, the one son, uh, he's like Tarzan. I mean, he's a wild man. Funny, full of life. Kind of a legendary figure, you know, really invested in the church. The other, if one's like Tarzan, the other one, he's, he's like George Washington. He also has like this sense of awe about him. Striking figure, commanding, bold, amazing, amazing guy. Now, now those two guys are also fathers, and they have children. Their children... Some of them have the same stature as they have. But I don't know if they have the same spiritual stature that they have. In fact, as I keep up with them, you know, long distance, one of them would profess to be an atheist. It blows my mind. I mean, I think about that grandfather and those sons, those fathers, and I think about that one of their children could be someone who's an atheist, it blows my mind. It, it actually really saddens me anytime I, I see something that's evidence of that or a post that leads me in that direction. Here's what I know. This kind of thing has touched many in our church family as well. I'm talking to people in this room. I'm talking to people who are worshiping with us online who, who have that same experience. That though they are faithful and they've been in the church They've seen another generation walk away from the faith. And even if that's not your story, you know someone who's got that story, don't you? I mean, here's the stats. The stats say that every state, this is incredible, every state in the United States of America reflects a, a dwindling or decreasing percentage of people who identify as religious. More and more people in every state, every single state, are identifying as no religion. That's happening in our nation. In, in England, you know, we're, we're a church that, that worships in the Anglican tradition. We're non-denominational, but we worship in, the, in a non-denominational, uh, I'm sorry, in an Anglican tradition. That's why you hear us recite the creeds. That's why there are certain things about the way that we, uh, 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 the way we observe the, the, the um, sacrament of baptism and communion, the way we do things here. It's rooted in the Anglican tradition. Well, in the Anglican church in England, the expectation is that the number of faithful is going to decrease by 90% by 
over the next 25 to 30 years? 90%. First of all, let me say this. I don't have that kind of expectation for the church. I don't think that way. Nor should we think that way. Because we follow the one who said that even the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. So we don't need to buy into that negativity that 90% of the church is going, no way. We, we, won't, we won't believe that. We're going to pray for something different, right? But those are the stats. We see the people, the trends, so to speak, are that people are walking away from the faith. I mean, think about your own families. Think about the next generation in your, net, your circle. How about your children? Are your children walking faithfully with the Lord? Are your children people who love God, who love his church, who want to serve the church of Jesus? How about your grandchildren? If you have grandchildren, are your grandchildren into the word? Are they passionate about the things of the Lord? Where's their heart? What do you see when you look at the next generation? How will they live? It's a big question. It's an important question to us here at Christ Church. It should be a question, uh, an important question for all the church. How will the next generation live? You know, we're in this series that we're calling All in the Family. We get that really snazzy bumper you just saw. And, and the question that this series poses and seeks to address is this. What about faith in the context of the family? How do we navigate all the things that are a part of, of, of life and family through the lens of faith? How do we see it through God's redemptive lens? And so today we're going to be talking about parenting. Now there's some of you who hear me say, we're going to talk about parenting. You're like, well, I guess this one's not for me. Time to get out the old phone and scroll a little bit. No, listen, if you say it's not for you, I say, really? I mean, are you, are you not going to have children at some point in your life if you're a young person? And even if you say, no, I'm not going to have children, are, are you not going to be an aunt or an uncle? Are you not going to have some kind of influence in a family, in the church family? This is for everyone. There are principles here. It's incredibly spiritual. So don't tune out. This is for all of us. There's something I think the Lord wants to speak. And, and here's what I think uh, we need to consider this morning as we look at the text that David's already read for us. And that's this. What are we handing down? What are, you, what are you handing down? What will you hand down to the next generation? I believe this might be the most pressing question for the church today. There's a lot of pressing questions. This may be the most pressing question, or, or at least there aren't any more that are more pressing than this. What are we handing down? So let's go to Deuteronomy 6. We're in the Old Testament. I encourage you, have your Bible open. Take some notes. You can use the Bible app. It's always good to do this. Look at the Word yourself. Be, let's be students of the Word. Let's be people who ourselves look into it. Hey, test me. You, you don't agree with something? Come and talk to me about it. You see an insight that I didn't catch or I didn't hit? Bring it to me. Let's be in the Word. So let's go to Deuteronomy 6. We're going to begin in verse 1. And let's look at the first three verses to get started here. These are the commands, decrees, and laws the Lord your God directed me. This is Moses speaking. The Lord directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing, the Jordan, to possess. 
so that you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord God as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you, and so that you may enjoy long life. Hear, Israel, and be careful to obey so that it may go well with you, and that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, promised you. Just as the Lord, the, Lo the God of your ancestors, promised you. So what's this speaking of? It's speaking of covenant. Are you familiar with the word covenant? Covenant is a, a chosen relationship between two parties in which binding promises are made to one another. We talked about marriage last week. And in marriage, those vows that are recited as a part of a ceremony are a part of a covenant, agreement. So when husband and wife say to one another, I do, they're saying I do to sickness and health. Richer for poorer. Better or worse. We talked about last week how, how that's incredible that we stand on the altar in the midst of all these flowers and beautiful outfits and happy music and we're saying basically, look, if this goes bad <laughs> because of you, I'm not going anywhere. It's a covenant agreement. It's a covenant. The a covenant is actually the backbone of all the scriptures. Covenant is so important to all the scriptures. And what we see here, what Moses is invoking, what Moses is, is putting before the people is a reminder of the covenant that God made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The Abraham covenant. That's the one that's being brought into light here. And that covenant is one that promises offspring. It promises land. That's what they're about to take over. Land. And it, it promises blessing to all people. It's a covenant. It's an agreement. A chosen agreement between two parties. And the term's been outlined in this covenant that, that Abraham's reminding the people of as they stand to, to, to cross the Jordan, to possess the land, it's all reminding them of covenant. Now, part and parcel of covenant are laws, decrees, and commands. It's part and parcel. It's part of it. And, and what Moses is reminding them as they go to take the land, as they take that step, he's reminding them that these creeds and laws and commands are to be taught and observed continually, continually taught and observed. And who are the teachers? Well, here we see it, right? It says, uh, you're crossing the Jordan to possess so that you, your children, and their children after them. He's speaking to parents and grandparents. How's God going to communicate the terms of the covenant? How's he going to propagate the promise to the next generations? Through the family. God works through the family. A family is God's chosen instrument. And here he says, he says, look, parents, grandparents, I'm sure he's speaking also to great-great-great-grandparents. He says, listen, you must teach your children the things of the Lord. You must teach them his ways, his love, his commands, his laws, his decrees, so they will not forget the promises that God has made, the covenant. Now, is it any different with us? Is it any different for us? No. Look, we are people who have a new covenant 
through Jesus Christ. Jesus, through his death on the cross. Just two weeks ago, we celebrated Resurrection Day, Easter Sunday. It was glorious. We had an awesome Easter Sunday here. On an Easter Sunday, we are celebrating the new covenant through Jesus Christ. It's a covenant that's been paid for by his blood shed on the cross, his body broken. And here are the terms, so to speak, of the covenant. Forgiveness of sins. Hello, is there anyone out there who needs forgiveness of sins today? Listen, if you are struggling with the weight of your own brokenness, the own problems of of your disobedience, sin in your life, man, there's great news. There's a new covenant. And through Jesus' death on the cross, there is forgiveness of sins for all y'all, for everybody. It's there for us for the taking. Not only that, God has given us his Holy Spirit. And by his Holy Spirit, we are empowered to obey his commands and decrees and laws, his ways. You're like, I can't get out of this rut. I can't get past my sin. Listen, the gift of the Holy Spirit to all who are partakers in the new covenant is an incredibly empowering gift to you that enables us to obey God and to live and be blessed in his ways as we follow him and we live through his victory, Christ's victory. And and also through this, this new covenant instituted by Jesus, through it, we have been unified as a people. Unified to shine like a light. The, the scriptures describe it as like a city on a hill. That we'd be bright and we would be a blessing to people. A salve to people. People who spread the pleasing aroma of Jesus Christ everywhere we go. These are some of the terms, just some of the terms of the new covenant. Some of the blessings that we have through Christ. So we have a new covenant. Listen, Jesus speaks of this new covenant. We remember it in communion. He commemorated this. Luke 22, listen. He took bread. He gave thanks and he broke it. And Jesus gave it to them saying, this is my body. This is how the covenant, the new covenant comes about. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. When we get together and we celebrate the sacrament of communion, we are remembering this new covenant. And then he goes on to say, after, after some more narration, in the same way after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant. This cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. We are partakers in a new covenant. The folks that Abraham's talking to, they're considering the, the covenant of Abraham for offspring and land and a blessing to all people. We ride on those coattails too, but we have the new covenant. And the new covenant is one that's incredibly um, powerful for life. Listen, if, if you do not know Jesus, if you have not partaken, if you have not signed on the dotted line, so to speak, for this new covenant, what are you waiting for? This is life. There's forgiveness of sins and power and unity and community in the body of Christ. This is the new covenant. Listen, though, we've got to hand it down. Ask the question at the beginning. What are we handing down? Well, here's what we should be handing down. Jesus. Let's hand down the new covenant of Jesus. Look, did you catch that video this morning? Isn't that great? The middle school amped camp. Is that not exciting? Don't you wish you could go to that camp? How much fun. Some of you are going. I'm looking at some people who are going to that camp. It's incredible. I love that our church 
is investing in students. I'm so grateful for Robbie and for Jeremiah and their work with our students, aren't you? I mean, it's incredible. We believe in not just having fun, not just jumping off of, of, of platforms onto some blob and being splashed out into the water and shooting paint pellets at someone. No, we believe in sharing the gospel with students, teaching them about the new covenant and the hope that they have and the community they can be a part of. That's why we go to these camps. And so listen, you should be excited. We have a children's ministry. It's happening right below us right now. Bunches of kids having fun, driving their leaders crazy, singing songs about Jesus. You heard the Carrillo family talk about what a blessing this has been to them. We, we, just, uh, we just promoted Bethany Rary to our full-time children's ministry director. What a gift from God that Bethany has been sent to us. We're so grateful for her. But listen, here's what I know about our children's ministry. We have an, a lack of adult leaders in this church in the children's ministry. <laughs> that should not be so. We, we have lots of teens who are serving. But for some reason, we continually struggle to have adults, faithful adults, to teach children about the new covenant of Jesus. Are you kidding me? Look, I'll give you an example, and I don't say this as a brag. I'm just sharing this as, as leadership, okay? My family is all in in the children's ministry, all in. My wife right now is teaching children below us. She worked all week on a lesson. She prayed over it. She, she's teaching kids right now. My two oldest daughters, they serve on Sunday morning. They serve on Wednesday night. They're here. They've been doing this for a number of years now. Teenagers serving. My youngest daughter, okay, well, my youngest daughter, she's just eating goldfish, and she's blowing all of our tithe money by eating way too many goldfish, but she's involved at least. Hey, I mean, four out of five isn't bad, 80%. Some of you will say, well, Pastor Craig, your wife just, she loves children. No, my wife is tired of children. Are you kidding me? She is so tired of children, yet she, there she is. She's serving right now down there, and why does she do that? Why should you do that? because she believes in the power of the new covenant. And she knows that we have to impress this on our children. She knows we need to teach it to our children that they would observe the new covenant, right? That's why she does this. So, so, so listen, listen, I wanna give you the goal. The goal is that this generation and those that follow will love God, trust Jesus and serve him all the days of their lives. That's what, we, that's what this is saying, and this is what we desire in the church. Come on, people, we've gotta be about this. We have to be. I don't know, again, is there, is there much more important in the life of the church than this? Let's keep going. Okay, so, so picking back up in verse four. I'm fired up today, here we go. Okay, verse four. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Okay, so here we are. We are picking up right now in verse 4. And verses 4 through 12 represent what is known as the Shema. The Shema. The Shema is the most important text, perhaps, in all of the Old Testament. We should know this. In fact, this is amazing. Christians and Jews actually agree on this text. This is one that we say, yes, we both agree of how important this is, how meaningful this is. 
We do. It's incredible. The Jews, they take this very seriously. Those Jews who are observant Jews, they, they recite this Shema, verses 4 through 12. They do it morning and night. It's memorized. They pray it twice a day. In fact, when their children, as soon as they're of age, we're not talking like 12, when they're three, they teach them the Shema. They memorize it. It's a part of their, the, the foundation of their education. Do we teach our children John 3, 16? When they're three years old, we should. Do we teach our children the, the memorization of scriptures, the power of prayer? What a great example. We should be teaching our children this way. Man, I love that they do that. I love that's a part of the tradition. Jesus, when he was asked about what is the greatest commandment, you know what he did? He quoted the Shema. And so here we have this really powerful prayer in the context of Moses saying, look, when you cross over the Jordan into the promised land, don't forget, don't forget the covenant God made through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Don't forget his laws and decrees. Teach them to your children and your grandchildren. And here's what he says we're going to teach them. And, and that very first phrase there of the Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The literal translation is this, hear, Israel. The, again, Hebrew doesn't always translate in a really straight way to, to, to English. But here's what the literal translation would be. Hear, Israel, Yahweh our God, Yahweh one. That's the literal translation. And that's kind of, you're like, what's that all about? Well, here's what it's about. It's about monotheism versus polytheism, okay, monotheism. That's the belief in one, a single divine being. Polytheism, of course, is the opposite. It's the belief in many divine beings. This was a problem in ancient Israel. And so it's being addressed here by the Shema, the Lord is one. What, what God is seeking to do through these words is change their mindset to understand that, that, that Yahweh is one. It's not that there are many Yahweh gods out there. That's one of the things they believed. It's, it's not that all the gods of the nation are equal in any way, in any sense, to Yahweh. No, he's saying, no, Yahweh one. Yahweh our God. Here, Israel, listen. He is one. You know, I think that there's something here we have to consider as, as we consider this monotheism versus polytheism. And that's idolatry. There's a quote by John Calvin that I think is just brilliant. And the quote is this, the human heart is a factory of idols. Think about that. The human heart, everyone, the human heart is a factory of idols. In other words, we're really good. One of the things that humans are adept at, one of the things we're experts in, is inventing idols. Think about that in your own life for a second. Everyone. Idol factory. Here's how we do this. Think about this in the context of the family, parents, okay? Let's say that as a family, you're driving in your minivan. And as you're driving on the minivan on a beautiful day like today, and you look outside the window, you see children playing soccer on a field. And you look back in your car in the mirror and you see your kids watching Spongebob on a device, licking their fingers from the french fries you just bought them for breakfast from McDonald's, washing down said french fries with a nice cold Coca-Cola, 32 ounces, 
And you think to yourself, what am I doing? Why are my kids not drinking ionized water? Why are my kids not out there running and exercising? They're watching SpongeBob eating fast food in the back of the car. And all of a sudden, you have this, this expectation has been placed on you. Same thing happens on Facebook. You're scrolling on Facebook, and what do you see? Here's a family that made a trip to Disney World. It's a surprise trip. They surprised the kids. Everyone's wearing matching shirts with little ears on them. All the family has the Mickey Mouse hats on. There they are with the pictures of Goofy, and you're thinking, what a failure I am. How, how have I not given this to my children? And what do we do? We project this on my children. Hey, you've got to play a sport. You've got to be in this activity. Hey, we've got to do this as a family. Because somehow, if we don't, we're not doing the right things. We're not training up our kids in the right way. The human heart's an idol factory. In really subtle ways, we tend to make idols. Is there anything wrong with going on a trip to family? Of course not. Should your kids participate in activities? That's a great thing to do. But when it becomes the thing, we place our affection and say, no, my kids have to have this. This is what they have to have. Their lives won't be complete. You need to be doing this. When we do that, all of a sudden it, it turns to something far more insidious and becomes like this idol. Our lives won't be complete without this. That's what happens. The human heart is an idol factory. So what idols are we projecting? Listen, generally speaking, anything, you name it, anything because of the condition of the heart and the idol factory that we are, anything can become that idol. Specifically, I would say this, security and comfort. For an American audience, security and comfort, health and wealth. These are the kind of things that, that we place our hope in, that become our polytheism without us even knowing. Listen, Yahweh one. The Lord God is one. And he commands that we would seek him and him alone. You know what I look forward to someday? I hope this is the way it should be in my house, in your house. The way it should be is when I drive past the church, I should think to myself, man, I've got to get my kids into the community of believers. They've got to be a part of that. They've got to have that as a part of their, their, their upbringing. That they have faithful people around them to pour into them, to love them, to teach them the gospel, to teach them the new covenant. That, that when I pass by my, my, uh, my nightstand in my bedroom and I see the dusty Bible on it, I gotta think to myself, man, I've gotta get my kids into this. I've gotta get into this word. My kids, I've gotta get them in this word. They have to know the word of God. There's nothing more important. This is what I, would, I believe it should be. And how do we do this? How do we fight against idolatry? Well, it's right here in verse five. Listen, in verse five, let's read it again. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength, this in literary terms is known as a merism. Merism. And a merism is, is a literary technique to express things on two ends of a spectrum and everything in between. And so when the writer here says, love the Lord God with all your heart, dot, 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 and with all your strength, it's not like, well, try, you do this with your mind, and you do this with your soul, and you do this, right? No, it's expressing everything. You do it with all of your being, with every fiber of who you are. You are to love God. How do you fight against idolatry? You increase your love for God. You, you seek to love the Lord more, to give more of yourself to him. I'll tell you this. The most powerful influence that we can have as parents, aunts and uncles, 
church family is a visible, passionate love for Jesus. You want to get this, this one thing right in this parenting gig? It's this. Be a person who is passionate in love in a way that everyone can see. Be a person who loves Jesus with all you have. That's the best example. I'm so thankful for my dad, who was that example for me, and my uncle, who was that example for me, and coaches, who were that example for me, and people in the church, Sunday school teachers, who were that example for me. Be that person. That is contagious. Let's keep going. Jump back into the text. Deuteronomy 6, verses 6 through 9. These commands that I give you today are to be on your hearts. I love that. Nagging you, not letting go. They're to be on your hearts. Not on a book written down somewhere necessarily. Not on a sticky note. They're to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and write them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your homes and on your gates. So this last part about writing them on the door frames and, and binding them to your heads and, and putting them on, on your, your arms. The, 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 the Jews take this seriously. Like literally. There's something called phylacteries. I have a picture of phylacteries here. Phylacteries are these little boxes that hold segments of Scripture, passages of Scripture. And they literally tie these things an observant Jew would tie these things on their forehead. They take this from, from the Shema, literally. I'm going to put the scriptures on my forehead. And, and, and the part about the door frames, well, there's something called mezuzah. Here's a picture of mezuzah. Mezuzah is a little container of scripture that would get attached to the door frame. And, and, and when someone would, would enter a home, they touch it. Like, you know how the Notre Dame football team, they touch the sign on the way out to the field? In the same way, a Jew would tap the, <laughs> they'd tap the mezuzah on the way into the house as a way of reminding themselves of, of the presence of God. It's a sign that the house is set apart from the Lord. It's a place where the word is loved. And I, and I love that very literal translation. The question is, is it merely meant to be taken Literally. Well, perhaps, but I think that honestly, obedience to God's word in, in every aspect of life and all we think and all we do is really the interpretation of this. It's not just putting something on your forehead or tattooing on your arms. It's not, it's not, merely, it's not merely having on your doorpost. There's this idea that you keep repeating the truth of God. There's this idea in here and here that you get to the heart of a matter with no ambiguity and press it on your children. That's what that's saying. You can take it literally, but there's a much more powerful meaning behind the literal meaning. I have a friend. We were talking about this, this sermon this week, and my friend said to me, he said, he said, you are always teaching your children. He reminded me of this. He said, you're always teaching your children. He said, what are you teaching them? It's a good question, right? That's what this is saying. You're always teaching your children. When you walk, when you lie down, when you sit down, you're always teaching your children. So what are you teaching them? Some would look at others and say, well, they're not teaching their kids anything. I'll tell you what, yes, you are. <laughs> you're, teaching, you're teaching your children something. Even if there's an absence of teaching, you're teaching them something all right. Your non-example becomes an example. 
That's right. Your non-example becomes an example. And some people would say, well, the reason I'm not really teaching my kids, I don't know that much about the Bible. I don't feel very comfortable. I don't know enough about the Bible. Well, let me tell you a story that might help you. So my wife, years ago, when our oldest two were little, they're 14 months apart. When they were little, Lisa was getting, trying to get out of the house to get to church. Now, when you are a pastor's wife, like Lisa is, you're, you're taking care of the kids by yourself a lot of times. You're getting them out the door on a Sunday morning all alone. Some of you know what I'm talking about. And so that can be stressful, particularly when you got little ones. And so on this particular day, Lisa was running late. Everything had gone wrong. And as she's bending down to tie her shoe, one of the daughters, who will remain anonymous, took one of those Cabbage Patch dolls. You know what I'm talking about? The kind that have like the hard head. Took the, the Cabbage Patch doll and started to hit my wife in the head with, a, it's a violent home, started to hit my wife in the head with that Cabbage Patch doll. Well, of course, she was just like pushed over the edge. So she took the Cabbage Patch doll, and as the little girl stood there, she took it, and like she was at Kennywood, trying to knock down milk cartons, she took the doll, and she threw it at my daughter. And she plopped down her little diapered butt. It was really, it was really amazing. This is the woman who's teaching Sunday school in our church. You're telling me you can't teach your kids the Bible? This woman on the way to church threw a doll at our child and knocked her over. Are you kidding me? Listen, you, don't, you say you don't know enough about the Bible. Let me tell you two things that hopefully will set you free. Number one, it's never too late to begin to study. What are you waiting for? It's never too late. Like, don't let that be your excuse. Well, I don't know enough about the Bible. It's never too late to start to study. This is the time. In fact, you'll be learning things, and they'll be fresh to you. You'll be better off than, than me or my wife, because you'll be like, you know, this is all fresh to me. I've just learned this. And you could share these things with your children. So listen, if, if you have children, if you're a grandparent, it's never too late to begin to study God's Word. So you can impress it on your children. Hey, all you got to do is stay a day ahead. You don't have to be years ahead. You don't have to have the whole thing memorized. All you need to do is stay a day ahead. It's never too late to start reading the scriptures. And here's the other thing I would tell you too. You know, if you're like, I, I, I just don't know the scriptures well enough. I feel inadequate. No, don't let that be your excuse. I don't know isn't the worst answer. It, it really isn't. It, it displays humility to your child. If you say, you know what? I, I don't know the answer to that. Not only that, it gives you an opportunity to teach initiative and in solving problems. Hey, why don't we go look at the Bible together and see if we can find that answer? That's a good question. Why don't we search together? Why don't we go ask someone about this? I want to learn about that too. Look, don't use an excuse to say, I don't know the Bible well enough. You, you can do this. It's never too late to start. Even if you don't know the answers, there's a way. Parents, grandparents, Aunts and uncles, people in the church who are working with our children, it's never too late. I'll give you a vision of how we can sum all this up. A, a vision of, of what I would hope that your homes would look like, that my home would look like. Three simple principles. The first one's this. I would hope that our homes would be a place where God's presence is welcomed. Let's just start there. That, that your home would be a place where it's like, Lord, we pray and we, we welcome you. You're invited as if he needs an invitation. 
but that we would have a posture that says, we want God. We desire him and his activity in our home. We desire that when people come and visit us, that they would be brushed by the presence of God. We want our house to be a place where God's presence is welcome. That's one principle. Here's the second one. I would hope that the vision would be that, that your home would be a place where the scriptures are honored. That you share what you're learning from the word of God. That you read the scriptures together. That, that your children see you reading the Bible. That, that instead of putting the Bible in the corner of your doorframe, it's on your heart. And it's something that's a part of, of the culture of your family home. And so your home be a place where God's presence is welcome. Your home to be a place where the scriptures are honored. And thirdly this, that your home would be a place where you're not ashamed of your faith. That, that it's something that's outward. That you share, that you're excited about, that you're bold to share your faith. That you don't hide it under a bushel. That you're open and talking about the things of God. And sharing stories about what God's done and, and sharing how you're following him. A place, a home, where you're not ashamed of your faith. It's like you're wearing it on your arm or on your head. It's right there, out in the open, in a way that's, that expresses great wisdom and, and, and gentleness and truth. You would be a person. Your home would be a place where people aren't ashamed of their faith. I know you would love for me to tell you practically, well, how do we do this as parents? Give us the practical steps. I would rather we all take steps to figure out on our own. Make your home a place where God's presence is welcomed. Ask God, how do we do that? Make your home a place where the scriptures are honored. Make your, your home a place where you're bold in your faith. Lord, how do we do this? You can figure it out. You don't need me to tell you how to do it. The Lord can show you this. You together as a family can do it. I want to share a scripture as we come to a close of this message. You know, we're looking at Deuteronomy 6, and we're considering the Israelites on the cusp of crossing the Jordan, taking the covenant promises. And just a few books later, we have Deuteronomy, and then you have Joshua. When you get to the book of Judges, right at the beginning of Judges, there are a couple of verses that stand out to me as we consider what Deuteronomy 6 says about impressing commands on children and teaching them the ways of the Lord, of not forgetting the covenant promises. Listen to, to Judges 2, verses 8 through 10. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. And they buried him in the land of his inheritance, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash, and after that, the whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors. Another grew, another generation grew up who neither knew the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. I don't know if there's any sadder words in the scriptures. That there was a whole generation just on the cusp of people who had crossed the Red Sea, been delivered by the mighty hand of God in a miraculous way, out of Egyptian bondage, had, had eaten manna in the desert, and quail. And what does it say about a generation just on the, the heels of that? That another generation grew up 
who neither knew the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. I'll tell you, those are hard words. It reminds me of that, that family in the church where I grew up where a third generation comes and it seems like they don't know the Lord. But here's what I'm reminded of. The story's not over. The story continues. The story of that family is not complete. Hey, the story of your family is not complete. The story of our church is not complete. And the Lord is a redeemer. He's working in mighty ways. His kingdom is marching on. His truth is marching on. The work of Jesus will not be curtailed. 90% in 25 to 30 years walk away from the faith? I don't think so. Because I believe the Lord is raising up people. I believe we may see revival. And so listen, don't buy into it. I don't believe that was the last word for Israel. And I don't believe it's the last word for you. So listen, here's what I want to say. And I want to speak to you right now on behalf of children. Children who are part of this church family. Children who aren't even born yet. And I want to read to you the words of Jesus. Listen to, to this. John 14. Jesus says, I have it here. Jesus says, whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. Whoever has my command. This is like his riff on the, 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 the uh, Shema. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I too will love them and show myself to them. Oh, that the Lord would show himself to this generation and the generations to come. Oh, that we would be a church that displays the love of God and supports families, parents, and grandchildren in a way that shows and reflects the love of God through Christ. I want to ask you to do something as we close here today. And I'll, and I'll say this on the front end of this. What I'm going to ask you to do, I don't want you to do just because everyone else is doing. You're going to see some people in a moment stand up. And if you're not feeling that, if you're not in that place, don't feel the pressure. There's no judgment here. No one's going to look over and say, I can't believe he's not standing up or I can't believe she's not standing up. No. Consider this, though. If you are someone, parent, a grandparent, someone who just loves the next generation, an aunt and uncle, whatever it might be, and you would desire prayer, as you endeavor to impress on your children the ways of the Lord, I would ask you to stand, and I would love to pray over you today. And so if you're a person who would desire prayer for your family, again, there's no pressure. Don't feel like you have to do this. But if you desire that, I would love to pray over you. Many people saying, let's pray. Lord, oh, I'm, I'm thankful for your grace, Lord. And I thank you for the promises of Scripture. Lord, with so many standing today, this is our statement of faith. We say, Lord, yeah, we don't want to see another generation pass away and, and turn away from you. We desire that every generation, our children and their children and their children, would know you and serve you. In fact, we pray for more for them, more than what we have, more than what we've experienced. Lord, as I pray, I, I recognize, I look around the room, I know that there are families where children have walked away, walked away from the faith. 
living a life that, that's apart from God. I pray over those families right now. I pray, Lord, in the name of Jesus, that you would return children to the faith. That, that in Jesus' name, they would see the light and see the true life that comes through the new covenant of Jesus, forgiveness of sins, power through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, a family to be a part of that's a blessing. I pray, Lord, for those who have gone away that they would turn back by your hand, Lord. Lord, I pray for those who have young children, that you would teach them how they could teach their children the scriptures, how they could teach them the ways of God. Would you stir in us in that way, God? Lord, I pray that, that through your grace, you would help us, Lord, even when we're imperfect, you would teach us to be people who share with the next generation the hope of Jesus, the one who has fulfilled the new covenant through his blood. Lord, help us be passionate for him. Help us, Lord, to love you with all of our heart, with everything, every fiber of our being. God, we commit ourselves to you in this way. I pray for a blessing on every household, every family that's represented. I pray that our children's ministry be effective in teaching children and loving them and nurturing them in the faith. I pray our youth ministry would set kids on fire and empower them for, to follow the mission of Jesus. Oh, Lord. Let your church shine like a city on a hill. We pray this in the powerful, matchless name of Jesus. Amen.